1: Really pleased to say that joining us here in the studio in New York City is Brian Levitt, Invesco Global Market Strategist. Good morning to you, Brian. Good morning. Your take on that, how well this market is holding up in the face of some bad news here and there through much of this week.
0: Well, it's a better tone for the market. I mean, think about how negative investors were in the summer. You had seen interest rates go down significantly. We inverted the yield curve. And what you really need was policy to respond. So the Federal Reserve has responded and will continue to respond. We've seen some modest improvements in tone in the U.S.-China trade situation. So I view this as the market had gotten very negative. Uh, The tone is getting somewhat more positive and now the market is is really looking for the next catalyst to press higher.
1: All the earnings through this week, for every Amazon there is a Microsoft, for every Texas Instruments there is an Intel. It's been pretty mixed actually through the week so far, Brian. Is that your take too? Yeah, it's a
0: very mixed picture and and earnings growth is not going to be significant. It's very consistent with a global economy that had slowed pretty meaningfully amid all of the policy uncertainty. So this is the third growth scare we've had in this elongated cycle. The first time, the, uh, the European Central Bank stepped in. The second time in 2016, the Federal Reserve backed off. And now markets are looking for clarity on trade, which will start to improve business sentiment and start to improve capital expenditures, start to improve the manufacturing sector. So the market is dealing with a, a flat earnings growth environment, and we wait for the next catalyst to improve business confidence
2: and start to improve economic activity globally. Hey Brian, at what point do you think we need to worry or be concerned about valuation? We've had a nice 20% run-up in the market uh, this year, roughly, yet earnings have been kind of flattish. Where are we in valuation?
0: Yeah, so the market, um, if you look at the broad S&P 500, you're trading somewhere around 19, 19 and a half times earnings. So that is expensive compared to the long-term average. But I think it makes more sense for investors to think about it within the confines of the current interest rate and inflation environment. And so, you know, if you if you say a 19 times price earnings multiple on stocks, I'd rather think of it of an earnings yield, an earnings yield of, uh, you know, call it 160 earnings divided by 3,000 on the S&Ps around 4 and a half percent compared to a 1.8 treasury yield. So (laughs) yes, stocks are a little bit expensive to their own history, but are still cheap compared to bonds um, at a time when investors really haven't gotten euphoric about equity. So yeah, do we have significant multiple expansion here? Perhaps not. I suspect what drives markets higher is a better policy mix that starts to improve economic activity and ultimately drives earnings
2: higher in 2020. So given that we're 10 plus years into this economic cycle, where valuations are not cheap historically, but we have the uh, the low interest rate environment, are there certain sectors that you like right here? Because we've heard people talk about I need to be safe. I need to be, you know, kind of get into the r- less risky sectors, but those aren't cheap when I think about REITs and utilities yeah, yeah, and yeah. things like that. So, what sectors? Do you think about at this point of the sector?
0: Well, I think it's too late to get defensive. I mean, the time to be defensive was when the 10-year Treasury rate was going from three and a quarter to 150, and that was the market telling you we were in the throes of a policy mistake, both from the Fed and the administration on trade. You know, this backup in rates and a little bit of an improving tone, that favors the more cyclical parts of the market. I don't think we're going into this environment where the U.S. gets to this new, higher, sustained level of growth and starts to unlock the deeper value in the market markets. I would favor in the near term the more cyclical parts of the market as growth improves. As you get out into 2020, honestly, I think we're just going to get back into this slow growth world where investors are going to get back to paying these fancy multiples on true growth companies and discretionary names and technology names market leadership tends to not change meaningfully later in the cycle so we're in a period right now where more value more cyclical but I think we get back to growth in a slow growth world
1: type of environment slow growth trend growth in 2020 that's sufficient for a sustainable break of 3,000 on the S&P 500, Brian? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know,
0: we we were been in this nice environment of 2% growth for a long period of time that didn't really please workers, didn't really please the voters, but it's been fantastic for the equity markets. And the reason it's fantastic for the equity markets because it's strong enough to support corporate earnings, but not so strong as to bring forward inflation and Fed tightening. And so in that type of environment, you just don't want to upset the apple cart. What we've been dealing with since 2018 with stimulus and then Fed rate hikes and then the trade war is upsetting this nice 2% growth, 2% inflation, no Fed tightening environment. That's been very good for equities and should
1: continue to be good for equities. Let's wrap this conversation up. The debate of the week for me, have we seen off the worst of it? Have we seen off the worst of it? Sometimes the information content and how a market responds to information is just as important as the data itself. And through this week, the PMIs haven't picked up in Europe. No. No. Business confidence in Germany, a glimmer of hope, but it's not really that convincing. Yet, the stock 600 new high for 2019. What's the signal there brian
0: yeah so the market is sniffing out a better policy mix leading to better economic activity and so i believe we have seen the worst of it i mean look jonathan we we got to one and a half on the 10-year rate we got to an inverted yield curve that was the bond market telling us as well as what happened with the dollar and strength the currency market telling us we're in the throes of a policy mistake that's leading to a severe economic slowdown as you start to change that narrative, Fed steps in, administration starts talking about skinny deals. We kick the can down the road further on Brexit and this idea of a, of a hard Brexit or a no-deal Brexit. For the record, to you brought up Brexit first. Yes. Yeah, yes. I, just, yes. I did. Just right? to clean that up. <laughs> Carry on, Brian, please. That's the word of the day. Um, And, you know, all of that starts to improve the tone in the market and market. um, So I suspect you will see the um, the purchasing manager indices and the leading indicators of economic activity start to pick up again, just like they did when the European Central Bank responded in 2012 and just like they did when the Fed backed off in 2016.
1: The debate we're having right now is so polarizing. I imagine there are people screaming, screaming, saying, I agree with Brian. There will be other people saying, I completely disagree. Let's put you on the spot. You think we've seen the low for the 10-year, for this year?
0: Oh, yeah, I think we've seen the low for the 10-year. I don't think that we're going to see the 10-year rate go meaningfully higher. This is a cyclical move up in tenure but the tenure will likely reflect where where real economic activity is in the united states call it call it closer to two percent but you know 325 was treasuries that had um, been oversold one and a half was treasuries that were overbought and two percent right along the lines of where potential growth is in this country is is a more reasonable rate for the tenure
1: brian great to see you great to see you as well brian levin invesco global market strategist Here is your two-second Brexit warning. Now we're going to discuss Brexit. Here's the latest for you. The Prime Minister has been forced legally to ask for an extension. The EU has not said when that extension will go to because the Prime Minister is now asking for an election. Jeremy Corbyn is so far saying no. James Athey has the unfortunate luck of joining us on this programme to talk about it. Aberdeen Standard Investments Senior Investment Manager joins us out of London. Good morning to you, James.
3: Morning, John. How are you doing?
1: What is going on in the United Kingdom? You could have eased
3: me in gently with a question about yes. <laughs>
1: something a little less ridiculous,
3: um, but thank you for starting me with the the impossible task i don't know like I gave up doing what I normally do as an investor, looking at the world probabilistically, gaming this out how do I you know who's incentivized to do what what does the world look like in all of these scenarios, et etc, et etc It hasn't worked i you know the normal motivations for political individuals and parties don't seem to be driving their decisions and i think most confusingly and most recently of all the opposition strategy which was oppose everything because you want an election has now been well you don't want an election either so what do you want and that means it's very difficult because of the fixed term parliaments act this is what's got us into this mess really the unintended consequences of that legislation unless and until um, the Labour Party's policy is a bit clearer and easy to understand. We're trapped in this situation where the EU won't move until they know what we're doing and we can't move until the EU is confirmed. So it's a tough one. I think essentially we're talking about a general election. If that's mid-December or not, I guess we'll find out more in the coming days.
1: For our listeners who might not be familiar with the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, essentially to get a snap election in the United Kingdom, it's not enough the government calls for it. You need two-thirds of MPs to actually vote for it. So for the Prime Minister to get what he wants, He needs the Leader of the Opposition, Jeremy Corbyn, and some Labour MPs to come with him. James, I was looking at the letter from the Prime Minister to the Leader of the Opposition on page two in the first paragraph. The EU may offer only a short extension, say the 15th or the 30th of November. This would obviously be my preference, but I was legally prevented by Parliament and the courts from suggesting this. James, I think it's pretty clear he's suggesting it. I just wonder what the EU will come back with, because this is actually pretty critical for the next moves in markets and the next moves politically. What extension the EU actually gives the UK? And so far, James, we've had no answer.
3: No, exactly. So the EU's position is obviously that an extension is almost a foregone conclusion, but increasingly they recognise, and I think we all recognise, that purgatory is suiting no one. So they don't want to be involved in UK politics, but neither do they want to be involved in just continually kicking the can down the road without any sign of resolution. So they want from us a plan. Why are we having this extension, and therefore what's an appropriate length of time? The problem is that Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the opposition, is saying... I will not vote for an election. I will not vote for this deal. I will basically not vote for anything until no deal is, quote-unquote, taken off the table, which is an impossibility because even if you could legislate to take it off the table as, as they have, that legislation can always be undone when a government has a majority. So again, we're sort of trapped in this situation. I think President Macron is, is an important figure to watch here. He, he's the de facto leader, I think, of the European Union and I think he's working well with Prime Minister Johnson and I think they're trying to pressure together the UK Parliament to get its act together. When push comes to shove, I still think it's probably more likely that, that we end up with an extension to the end of January than one to the middle of November. November. But but I say that with low confidence.
2: (laughs) With Low confidence. James, (laughs) I'll let you off the Brexit hook here. Let's focus on the markets a little bit. I'm inclined with indices at or near all-time highs. I've got earnings tepid at best. I've got growth slowing globally. You know, I'm hard-pressed not to just take all my chips off the table and go home. What are your thoughts?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's essentially not necessarily all of your chips off the table. I think there are still places that you can find value in markets, but those that, that, that value exists in defensive asset classes, not in pro-cyclical risky asset classes. I completely agree I'd actually have a more negative categorization of the earnings picture. I think the earnings that are being reported are not great, and the earnings that are being reported uh, are, you know, diverging hugely from the underlying profitability of firms across the U.S. economy in, in particular. So to me equities up here are incredibly expensive considering where we are in the economic cycle and I don't see any evidence that the main macro themes which have driven this economic decline are going away or a changing course. So I think we're on a path towards recession that's not imminent but that's the path that we're on and therefore I still want to own treasury duration and I do not want to own risky assets.
1: James Affey. Thank you. And I'm sorry that we started with Brexit. <laughs> but unfortunately, that's where we are in the UK. No man's land with a zombie parliament and hoping for a solution. Cable this morning, £1, $1. $1.2822 and down a quarter of 1%. And that was James Athey from Aberdeen Standard Investments, senior investment manager joining us out of London. the politics of DC just over the last weeks few weeks, relatively speaking, fading into the background on Wall Street just a little bit.
2: Just a little bit. But uh, it's interesting. It's not just earnings and it's not just the Fed that uh, investors have to deal with as as they think about uh, the markets. It's also geopolitics. We've got trade with China. We've also got some military situations in the Middle East to get a sense of what's going on there. We welcome Brett Bruin, director of the Global Situation Room, also former global engagement director in the Obama White House, uh, joining us on the phone from our D.C. Bureau. Brett, thanks so much for joining. Us. Give us a sense of kind of how you view the U.S. situation in Syria, given that the U.S. pulled out and all that's happened.
4: Well, I think, unfortunately, the U.S. has shown increasing um, uh, issues with its uh, allies. We are not any longer a reliable partner. And, and that was clearly on display with Trump's decision to uh, both uh, pull out of Syria, to back away from the Kurds, and unfortunately, this has pretty far-reaching consequences, not just for Syria, not just for the Middle East, but uh, countries, groups are going to be reluctant to um, get into these kinds of engagements with the U.S., knowing that um, our track record, particularly our recent track record, is pretty
2: spotty. So, Brett, it's interesting. President Trump you know, made the clear uh, argument that it's just time to bring our troops home. We can't be the policemen for the world. That is obviously uh, in contrast to post-World War II policy for the U.S. What do you think, in reality, it means for some of the other hot spots of the world? I'm thinking Korea uh, on top of mind.
4: Well, I think what we are seeing, and it's interesting you mention Korea, because Trump's decision to pull out of the uh, Iran nuclear deal makes a nuclear deal with North Korea that much more difficult, because he's shown how uh, the U.S. from administration to administration isn't necessarily going to honor the word of the last president. So uh, the calculation for someone like Kim Jong-un is, let me just see how much I can extract from this guy and, and not really make significant compromises. So the art of the deal when it comes to President Trump is,
1: Um, pretty superficial. So, Pred, let me tread carefully on two of these issues, North Korea and the Middle East, and I want to lean on your expertise. Many people criticize the current President of the United States for his approach in places like Syria, in places like North Korea, but the previous approach didn't seem to be that too effective either. Can you walk me through what you think the ultimate, the optimal approach actually is?
4: Well, and let me contrast the two, because there is this narrative out there. Well, Obama was reluctant to get into Syria. Obama pulled our troops out of Iraq. I was actually on a forward operating base outside of Tikrit 2008, 2009. When we did that, the difference was there was a plan. There was a process. It was orderly. In the Trump uh, foreign policy world, these decisions change from hour to hour, and that is what makes it so chaotic and and quite frankly, that creates this collateral damage that ricochets around the region and the world, you know creating unintended consequences.
2: So, Brett, if, if I were to poll a number of folks in the foreign policy establishment in Washington, professionals that have been there before the Trump administration are likely to be there after the Trump administration. How do they view kind of what our policy should be as it relates to engagement? Or disengagement?
4: Well, there's a lot of concern here in Washington. I've, I've started calling it a, a post American era where. The United States is no longer serving as the guarantor of uh, security, stability around the world. Our, our credibility um, is, is really taking a hit under this administration. The, uh, the challenge, I think, for the foreign policy establishment is how do you um, rebuild, whether it is under this administration or a future administration, and I think it's going to come by showing that we can um, hold uh ourselves to certain standards and others to those standards and and we will become more reliable.
1: Policy continuity in a democracy, Brett, you'll appreciate is incredibly difficult. And I just look at the situation right now and think, well, isn't this what people voted for in the last election? The president was pretty clear about how he would handle foreign relations, that he wouldn't want to get involved in places like the Middle East. In fact, he wanted to pull back. Should we be surprised?
4: Well, I think there uh, is a difference between political rhetoric and uh, national security implementation. And and sure, you know, Trump has always had his isolationist tendencies. He's always talked about uh, America first. But there is a way of doing it that's not as destructive. And, And if we just look at his record over the last two and a half years, there's not much that he has built on the world stage. He's bulldozed a whole lot, but we also need to have trade deals. We need to have um, these institutions in place, and, and I haven't seen uh, anything that, that Trump has actually uh, been able to accomplish for all of his you know, bombast.
2: So, Brett, um, Brett give us a, a sense of what you think Russia is doing here. Does Russia view the American pullback off of the global stage uh, to whatever extent we are pulling back, what extent is Russia viewing it as a real opportunity to reassert itself on the global stage?
4: Oh, it's a huge win. Uh, and let's just take uh, what recently transpired in Syria. Russia has you know, moved in, uh, asserted themselves over uh, the territory um, in the northeast of Syria. They've um, Putin was meeting in Sochi with... Erdoğan, they sort of divided up the spoils, and ironically, Russia has become a more reliable ally for countries in the region than the United States. Uh, Bashar al-Assad um, and and other leaders in the region are now looking to Moscow and saying, "We can get a better deal. We can get a." Um, more reliable deal from Putin than we can from uh, Trump or, or any American leader. For
1: that Wasn't the same true under Obama? You say under any other American leader, Brett, and I wonder if the same was true under Obama as well. Why is that different this time around?
4: Well, look, I I think the Obama foreign policy certainly had its its shortcomings, and and I witnessed uh, many of them firsthand. I mean, when we uh, looked at uh, the rise of ISIS and and we were reluctant to engage, and even when Obama came out in a primetime address, and, and he was still quite cautious. There is undoubtedly, you know, errors that were uh, committed under the last administration. I think we're talking uh, on a whole different scale when it comes to this administration.
1: We've got to leave it there. We'll continue the conversation another day. Brett Bruin there, director of the Global Situation Room and former Global Engagement Director in the Obama White House.
2: is a question. What do you do at this point? You have a bunch of cash. You're heading into the end of the year. A lot of people have been fairly conservative. Do you just buy the dip? Neela Richardson joining us now. She is Edward Jones, investment strategist. Uh, And Neela, it seems to be that that is what you're recommending, buy any dip. Is that correct?
5: Yes, (laughs) in in a word. So we know that the, the growth pattern in the economy is slowing. We see weakness in manufacturing, but we still see some bright lights when it comes to the consumer. The consumer's been resilient. So that's that pillar of the economy we think remains. We're also going to see a downturn in terms of earnings growth, but not earnings. So we think that earnings will slow, uh, especially uh, this quarter, and then pick up uh, in the fourth quarter and into next year. So what does that mean for the investor? It means that we expect more volatility, but we expect the bull market to continue. So this is the time to put that cash that's been sitting on the sidelines to work to buy quality investments at more attractive valuations.
2: Well Neil, let's talk about valuation a little bit. We've had the uh, S&P up, you know, roughly 20% this year but essentially no meaningful earnings growth. Do I need to be concerned about valuation that this market is rich?
5: We don't, we think that the market is reasonably priced. It's not cheap like it was in December when we had that big sell off and that was a good time. If you put money into the market, then you saw a very, very strong first quarter. So it's not cheap, but it is reasonably priced. And so that's why, with that combination of expecting more volatility, as we get all these headlines from trade and geopolitics, these are times to be opportunistic in your buying and look for those times when the market might be, uh, going through a, a, a bit of a, a dip to really put that cash in.
2: What would make you change your mind?
5: What would make me change my mind? About really buying the dip, starts, yeah, and be more bearish. Yeah. I would start being more bearish when I look to the consumer. I go back away from the market. It's interesting how much of our market outlook this year is based on the macro economy and not very real uh, idiosyncratic. Syncratic risk in the corporate sector. It's really about interest rates, the consumer growth and and global growth. If consumer confidence started to wane, if I saw a slowdown in hiring, if I saw a slowdown in wage growth, then I'd start to get concerned about the ability of this economy to keep expanding and it being supportive of equity returns over time. That would concern me. Right now, we're not seeing that. We're seeing a deceleration, but still growth. And so for that reason, we think that equities are, are set to climb this year and next.
2: So, Neela, I'm wondering about certain sectors that maybe I should be looking at if I'm thinking about getting into the equity markets. You know, I hear a lot of folks saying, you know, we're 10 plus years into this cycle. It's time to get defensive. But the defensive sectors are rich by historical level. Should I be thinking defensive or should I be thinking about maybe even more cyclical uh, type sectors?
5: So we are slightly more defensive than we were earlier this year. We took some, uh, money out of energy, because we don't think that is an opportunity anymore. We've been waiting for those valuations to pay off in the energy sector. But if you pair uh, what's going on there uh, with a slowdown in global growth, we don't think that's a, a good place to be. We're still a uh, favorable tech. Uh, there are multiple avenues for continued business growth. Now, you're going to see uh, some volatility in that sector, especially tied to regulation. We saw that with Amazon, uh, not as smooth in terms of earnings. Uh, when they reported, but tech we think is still strong. We are favorable healthcare as well. because of long-term demographics. So if you take a long-term view, there are opportunities in this market to really put that cash to work again. That's a recurrent theme, but you have to be more strategic now than you have and earlier in the cycle.
2: Cash to work is uh, is an important point here. And, and, and I guess that the other point is, what kind of returns should people be expecting over the next 12 months from uh, U.S. equities?
5: This is a time to really have a... a a realistic perspective. We are not going to see 20% year over year earnings growth like we did in 2017 and 2018. We are in a period of very low interest rate environment. We are seeing a slowdown in in growth both in the United States and globally. So we expect earnings returns to mimic that slowdown that we're seeing in the macro fundamentals, slower uh, returns than we've seen in previous parts of this cycle.
2: Neil Richardson, thanks so much for joining us. Neil is an Edward Jones investment strategist joining us on the phone.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.